this year on the theme of sustainability, social justice, and the global order. This is the first of about 10 lectures we'll have throughout the year. And if you look in the under LSE events, you'll see quite an impressive array of speakers coming in over the next two to three terms. Um, I, I am particularly pleased, however, this evening to introduce Sir David King, who will be speaking not just really on the challenge of climate change, but to the broad issues addressed by the Miliband theme, sustainability, social justice, and global politics. He says, title's a bit too bland, not enough crisis in it, so he will inject some drama into the, uh, into the title. Let me just say something briefly about Sir David's background, just to fill you in on some of his remarkable journeys. Sir David King is currently the director of the Smith School of Enterprise and Environment at the University of Oxford. He was the UK's chief scientific advisor and head of the Government Office of Science from 2007 to December 2000, from 2000 rather, from October 2000 to December 2007. In that time, among many things, he raised the profile of the need of government to act on climate change and was instrumental in creating a billion pound fund for the Energy Technologies Institute. Last, uh, was it last year or this year you published your book on climate change? Time goes so yeah. fast. In January, yeah, almost, yeah. In 2008, then I'll say in January this year, he co-authored The Hot Topic, published by Bloomsbury, on the subject of tonight's uh, um, lecture. As the director of the government's foresight program, he advised government on a wide range of long-term issues, not just climate change, from flooding to obesity. He also chaired the government's uh, Global Science Inf Innovation Forum right from its inception. He was born in South Africa in 1939 and after an early career at a number of universities, became the professor of physical chemistry at the University of Liverpool in 1974. A decade plus, a bit more later, he was appointed professor of physical chemistry at the University of Cambridge and subsequently became master of Downing College from 1995 to 2000. He has published, wait for it, for all of us, you know, budding academics and those of you who wish to become academics, he has published over 450 scientific papers and has received numerous awards, prizes, fellowships, and honorary degrees. He continues, among many of his day jobs, as director of research in the Department of Chemistry, shuttling between Oxford and Cambridge, I don't know how you do it, and is also, at the moment, president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. There is no one, in my view, no one who can speak with more authority, more clarity, and in a more compelling way on tonight's subject than David King. Thanks very much for joining us this evening, David. Um, I, I want to start with a very simple idea um, that, that we have an enormous knowledge base. Uh, it, it was developing rapidly over the previous 200 years, and then the computer revolution comes along, and we have a sudden capability of moving from understanding fairly simple phenomena to very complex phenomena, and maintaining, in many cases, the same degree of understanding. Now, I want to use that as a starting point because my thesis is going to be that having this knowledge capability very largely cocooned into our universities 
there's a rather poor system around of moving that understanding into policy decision making. Uh, you have heard that I, I had eight years in government to become aware of this. Um, I find in principle that in the private sector there is often a better understanding, take as a good example the insurance industry, of managing risks, uh, or if you take companies which require innovation to be competitive. There's a better understanding of the current state of knowledge relevant to what they're doing than you often find in governments around the world. So my, my first example is a, a, an admittedly dramatic one, but it's one that I was involved in, and, and that, that is the tsunami uh, of uh, uh, December the 26th, 2004. So that tsunami happens and it happens to be in a part of the world where there is no early warning system in place. And as a result, those of us watching it on television sets were aware that the tsunami was moving across parts of the planet and eight hours later the tsunami killed a bunch of people off the Kenyan coast. So no warning system, no mechanism in place to see that the risk was managed. And when I, I knew I had to make a report to the Prime Minister on this, that was the end of my Christmas break, and um, when I went to the United Nations and asked why wasn't there an early warning system in place, I was told this was a random and unexpected event because tsunamis happen, happen in the Pacific Ocean. So this, uh, this awful event, which occurred just off the coast of Banda Aceh, so the Sumatran Trench runs along here, just off that coast. This part of the planet, nobody could have been rescued. It happened far too quickly. But what about in Sri Lanka? What about in India as that tsunami made its way across the ocean? 230,000 people died. I'm estimating that 150,000 lives would have been saved with an early warning system in place. Now, what about this being a random event? The seismologists who study where volcanoes are, who study how plate tectonics work, how the plates carry the great, planet, the great continents around, are fully aware of the fact that when two plates are in collision, there can be a section that gets stuck. The collision rate is slow. The, planets, the, the plates move at about the rate of growth of your fingernails. But nevertheless, quite a big mass behind it. And so when a section gets stuck, we know that it's going to go. And the longer you wait, the more pressure builds up, the bigger the event is going to be. So as a matter of fact, the seismological community had predicted a tsunami would occur along the Sumatran Trench and said it would create a tsunami of force 9. There was the prediction by the scientists. And in even the summer of 2004, one Oxford scientist and one Californian scientist went on a trip to Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and India to try and persuade the governments they needed an early warning system. They couldn't find a mechanism for talking to somebody powerful enough to take on the idea of spending $30 million. That is all it would have cost on an early warning system. 
Now, the, the point I want to make is there's now an early warning system going in place. We have learnt nothing in moving the state of knowledge to the decision-making process since 1985 when the previous big tsunami occurred off the Peruvian coast. And in 1979, the seismologist said the next big tsunami is going to occur off the Peruvian coast. And the early warning system that went into the Pacific therefore went in after the event. Right, so my, my point is very simple. The knowledge is now there. We understand enough not to be able to predict what day it would occur or what year it would occur, but where it would occur and with what force. I'm just going to come back to my theme about knowledge and how well we use it, but I, I suspect many of you are feeling that economic modeling on a purely linear basis, which doesn't include the possibility of catastrophes, is hardly worth the computer time that is spent on it. We, we know enough to include feedback terms, nonlinear terms, in, in the modeling, and we really need to think hard about uh, causality and impacts that, that lead uh, into uh, catastrophic events that are building up over a period of time in the way I'm describing this uh, tsunami. Right, now, it's not all going to be doom and gloom, and I, I want to start by saying that through the 19th and 20th centuries, we had a remarkable series of improvements in human well-being, uh, resulting from probably we could go back to the enlightenment, enlightenment, we could go back to the Reformation, we can go back to the Industrial Revolution, to all of those things, this amazing transformation, which I'm going to uh, measure uh, in terms of life expectancy. Life expectancy at, at the beginning of the 20th century around 40 to 45 in most parts of the world. And as you can see on this map here, greater than 70 is the dark blue in many parts of the world now. And life expectancy in many parts of the world simply increasing linearly with time. That's already quite a puzzle. In this country, it's around 80, but increasing uh, quite rapidly. I'm going to attribute that to all of our infrastructure, to our uh, cultural systems, to the revolutions that have occurred in science, agriculture, civil engineering, the cleaning up of water provision, medicine, and so on. These coming through, I'm also going to suggest at the time of the British Empire, enabling a lot of those developments in Europe to spread rapidly around the world, and we see the benefits then still playing through. So there's the, the upside of the 20th century, a massive transformation in well-being. And as we move into the 21st, however, we find that we are building up another sort of catastrophe resulting from this very good picture. And that, of course, arises from the fact that there is a necessary follow-through that if you Im increase lifespan and you do it particularly over a short period, like 100 years, the follow-through is going to be population explosion. So nation by nation, you find that as well-being improves, female fecundity, which 
in this country and many countries would be about seven or eight. In South America, 20 years ago, would be that sort of figure. Female fecundity determines population growth only by reaching a dynamic equilibrium with the mortality rate. And typically, during the Middle Ages in this country, out of the seven or eight per woman, only two would survive into maturity, and two is what's needed for a stable population. But if you have a sudden improvement in well-being, all seven or eight survive into maturity. And that's what's been happening. And because they survive into maturity, excuse the scientific term, they form breeding pairs, and so we get the explosion in population. It's not just people living longer, but we've got many more people having children that causes the explosion. What then happens in the population dynamics as female education and, well, and, and empowerment improves, so female fecundity comes down. And so we, we drop back down towards two and we hit a stable population, which is roughly where Europe is today. But that population explosion is occurring country by country at different times. South America, I've just said, was seven or eight. It's now uh, the whole continent of South America is down at 2.3. So rapidly approaching that equilibrium level. So population growth is the issue I want to raise, and I want to look at the follow-through from that for the 21st century. We start the century at 1.5 billion. We end the century after adding another billion every 12 years. We end at 6 billion, and we're now at 6.8 billion. By 2028, we'll be at 8 billion. And the best current population forecast is indicated here. And we see that the median indicates actually a decline towards the end of the century. This may well happen. And on that median, you see by mid-century, 9 billion. That's the challenge. The 9 billion people are also all, of course, aspiring to live to the sort of standard of living I see in this room. So we, we not only have another 50% added to the population as we move forward in time, but we also have increased demand for resources per head of population in the planet. So my suggestion is that this contains the seeds of a whole series of necessary changes that if we use that knowledge base, we could manage, and if we don't, it will lead to a series of potential catastrophes. I'm going to suggest that we can focus on a few of these challenges. Um, so population the driver, I want to say at once that population containment is only a very small part of the solution because the dynamics of population growth, provided you have female education and empowerment, follows through, it contains itself. That's the driver, and then we need to look around uh, here. And I just want to focus first of all on the fact that we can't approach these problems linearly as if they're not interrelated. Each one of them is strongly related to another. So we do have to treat this as a complex problem. Can you hear me if I'm away from there? So if you take water resource, the state of Victoria and Australia, um, 
because of increased desertification in the state, have had seven years of successive years of drought. One of the bread baskets of Australia, the farmers are now packing their bags. And within two years, one third of the freshwater provision to manage the human population in the state will be provided from desalination. So you immediately say, well, there's a technological solution. Desalination comes through, solves the problem. However, desalination is an energy-intensive process. So we move around to energy security and supply, and it feeds straight into that problem. Ah, but Australia has lots of coal, and therefore they can burn coal to produce the desalinated water. And I'm taking you back across here to climate change, which is the cause of the desertification. And so we have a positive feedback. So we need to be very, very careful as we tackle these problems that we don't get into positive feedback loops because it's these positive feedback loops that lead to the kind of catastrophe that we should be trying to avoid. If we look at food production, we could say quite a lot about food production, but the obvious thing is as human population increases and the demand for fresh water therefore increases, but with an increasing human population, we contaminate water. So given a stable freshwater supply around the planet, decreasing freshwater supply after contamination crosses over with increasing demand from the increased population. Where's the crossover point? About 2040, 2045. It's approaching mid-century. But that's a global crossover point, right? Locally, people run out of water much sooner. So in other words, the presence of water doesn't any longer match local population dynamics. We get high populations in areas where there won't be enough water. So we go back to that desalination and technology solution route. Food production, just increase the amount of land you put under food production and make sure you have a political system for transporting the food to areas where people need it. But of course, then we threaten the biodiverse systems. Unless we manage land use properly, and I'm going to suggest that intensive agriculture is needed for the food production that we require, and if we do that, we can set aside land to manage biodiverse systems. The solutions can be there. Whether they're socially acceptable, of course, is, a, is another question. So linkage between all of these, and I'm going to come back to conflict and terrorism. As we move forward into a planet where there's limited resources available, given the demands, there is a potential for increased conflict. The more powerful you are, the more likely you are to secure resources wherever they may be for the purposes of your own population. Um, we, for many years, have been mining in Africa for the mineral resources that we need. And now we're seeing these remarks about the Chinese appearing in Africa. China doesn't have platinum. China doesn't have copper. And of course they want to get in there as a population that needs the mineral products. Potential for conflict, I think, enormous. And then you come back to land and climate change. Rising sea levels means less land available. And rising sea levels will flood 
the cities that are based on the coastlines, and of course that's a lot of the major cities around the planet. Bangladesh, very much at risk from flooding. I can't believe that this wouldn't cause anything but a massive flow of people seeking higher ground, more fertile ground as we move forward in time. All of these problems therefore imply that either we leave it to power struggles or we manage the problem as we move forward. That's a, a very big transition and that's really what the message I want to get across, a big transition required. I'm going to just focus on two of these problems and David you'll be pleased I will be talking about climate change for most of the time. Um, of all of these problems, climate change is the biggest problem and the reason I'm saying that is because that problem requires global agreement. We, we might manage other problems locally but because the atmosphere is a shared resource we need global agreement with all major parties on board. So we need a common solution that is accepted by all major nations and that's why I think that is the, the biggest the granddaddy of all the challenges we have around here. Uh, just very quickly, I haven't mentioned health and education. As the uh, planet's resources are stretched with growing population within a globalized economic system, we know that disease now travels very fast. And I give you the example of avian flu, which first appeared in birds in 1995. The big fear, of course, is that H5N1 is a virus that no human being has previously been exposed to. We know what happened to the Hawaiian population when Christian missionaries arrived there bringing a flu virus that none of the Hawaiians had been exposed to. So we're all at risk from H5N1 if it transforms itself from an avian flu virus to a human flu virus. That's the worry. It's taken from 1995 to the present day and still avian flu hasn't reached the Americas. So the slowness of that process is to do with bird migration patterns. Human migration patterns, totally different. We move around in aeroplanes and while I was in government we modeled what would happen if a virus appeared somewhere on the planet. How long would it take before it arrived in the British Isles? Well, it turns out the model dis demonstrates it would take three months to be in every country. And much of that movement would have happened during the, the so-called silent spread period of an epide epidemic, the period that epidemiologists hate because during that period, people haven't yet become apparently ill and are therefore freely traveling about and the disease after this incubation period becomes infectious. Right, so... Uh, hundreds of millions of people would be put at risk with a disease like that being transported so efficiently by our global means of travel. All of this requires a new uh, focus, a new attempt to manage uh, the problems. I believe we've got potential solutions and if we haven't got the potential solutions we know how to invest brains and money into finding them. Right, I'm going to go over to food and I just uh, point to the big hike in food prices that occurred earlier this, uh, this year. There was a, a sudden rise around March to, to May this year and 
interesting to evaluate the causes. I believe there are two major causes. The, the first is the issue of an unintended consequence, at least I'm going to be generous and suggest it was unintended, of the American policy of subsidizing grain farmers by subsidizing the uh, biofuel generation from food grain. And of course what that meant was that surplus food supplies that had previously been used as food aid uh, to other parts of the world uh, suddenly uh, diminished very substantially. So using food as a resource for, for fuel, it's uh, the energy security in, in the United States been tackled from a food security global uh, problem is, is at the root of a big part of that hike. Another part of that hike, a significant part, is crop failures. Now, of course, we've had a, a couple of series of amazing green revolutions in India, in China, in Southeast Asia, where there's been a seven-fold increase in crop productivity, food productivity per hectare, as a result of applying agricultural technology in a totally sensible way, which has meant that those burgeoning populations have managed to feed their people. But there is one particular form of crisis, which is that every year, rice crops, for example, are lost through flooding. Now, a rice plant that is marketable can sustain itself under totally flooded conditions for about three days, maybe four days, and after that, the plant dies. Now, we all know that rice needs a lot of water, so you're always planting in a region which is susceptible to flood risk. And so, in this year, there was a large loss due to flooding. Now, back in 1992, looking for flood-resistant rice was recognized to be a problem, and uh, uh, seeking a solution. And the International Rice Research Institute in uh, the Philippines, gathering bits of information, found that there was a variety of wild rice in India that can live right through flooding. In fact, it, it survives three or four weeks of total flooding. Now, this is wild rice, and it doesn't, it's not a commercial product that is formed. It doesn't even taste very nice. But the key thing was using genetic markers, moving in, finding out which were the genes responsible in the wild rice for creating the flood resistance. Uh, the gene is called FR, flood resistant 13A. Why 13A, I don't know. So having established this using genetic markers, they could then have snipped the gene from the wild rice into commercial varieties and generated flood-resistant rice, uh, something that could have been brought to the market in a couple of years. This is in 1992. But there is a sensitive opposition to GM that was generated in Europe, and so the researchers and the farming communities have been rather resistant to going down the route of using a GM product. So the alternative has been followed by the uh, International Rice Research Institute, which is to go into the business of normal plant breeding, but they are using genetic markers. So they just pick out the products which carry the right genes. But normal genetic breeding is you have to follow 
uh, growth cycles. You have to get into the, the paddies up to your knees in mud and up to your arms in mud. You're no longer in the laboratory snipping genes. You're doing a, something that is painfully slow. And in 2010, we now expect that flood-resistant rice, commercial rice, will hit the market. That's an 18-year period against two years if we could have used the, the alternative. So we, we have the knowledge. We establish ourselves then as a, in Western Europe, let me say, as a society very comfortable with our level of food available. And then we create scares about products such as GM products. Somebody will have to explain to me why you shouldn't genetically snip from a wild rice to a commercial rice product uh, to shorten that process. There is no known, and certainly there is no example, of a human being suffering from, uh, from consuming the products of that process. So solution could have been there. As we move forward in time, however, what we need is more food per drop of water. So considerably more research needs to be done all through this particular graph. Now, of course, those of us who are meat eaters need to just think about this a bit. There's certainly more water required for non those of us who are uh, meat eaters. But for the developing world, this is an issue because people are eating more meat as they become uh, better off. So we're creating a problem by sliding down this curve into the food provision uh, that, uh, that we're getting used to. If you look at the question of water scarcity and where it's happening already, so I'm, I'm suggesting that by mid-century we will have a global problem, but already we're experiencing areas where there's an absolute water scarcity and areas where there is uh, already a water scarcity which is moving towards absolute water scarcity. Uh, water scarcity being defined by population growth creates water scarcity. Climate change also creates water scarcity in some areas. So you've got two factors driving uh, the, the, the future. Let me just come to, uh, here's my persuasive photograph about the, um, the rice that has been developed. So this is a paddy field that's been planted right across on the left-hand side with the normal commercial rice. It's been underwater for, uh, for seven days, and you'll see that the, the new rice on the right-hand side is happily growing. It's a, a solved technical problem, but it could have been in the marketplace considerably sooner. Now, of course, drought-resistant crops have also been developed, that, but they've been developed by GM techniques. We still haven't got to the point of developing good drought-resistant res crops having learned how to do it by GM using the painstakingly slow uh, plant breeding process. I'm going to move on to this, this big problem. And let, let me say at once that I, I think the, the nature of the, the climate change problem is now uh, well understood. Um, and I, I, I therefore just want to say that we, we need to take on board the nature of the challenge under the heading of climate change that is now recognized at G8 level. So when I was in government, I was struggling to get some uh, foothold on this problem. And when we were in the presidency, the UK in, uh, of the G8 in 2005, we 
managed to get the Prime Minister to put climate change on the agenda, and it was just climate change and African development, two closely related problems. And now, this year, successive governments have maintained climate change on the agenda at G8 meetings, and this year in Japan, for the first time, we got an agreement which said we now have a target. And the G8 leaders said we are going to reduce our emissions of carbon dioxide globally by 50% by 2050. Our media, by the way, picked it up as a, some kind of further failure to agree. They pointed out that the starting point of the 50% reduction wasn't stated. Was it 2000? Was it 2009? Uh, they pointed out that there was no staging between now and 2050. I believe that's carping because managing to get through the heads of states an agreement saying halve our emissions by mid-century was a tremendous step forward. And then think through the challenge of decarbonizing our economies. For the developed world, a halving of emissions globally is a considerably greater amount of reduction, right? which means, for example, for this country, a reduction by around 80%. Now, at the moment, in this country, we emit 11 tons of carbon dioxide per person per annum. And in India, that number is about 2 tons per person per annum. 20% of 11 is 2.2 tons per person per annum. So by mid-century, we need to be where India is today in terms of carbon dioxide emissions per person. That's the nature of the challenge. And the officials of those heads of states of the G8 countries have taken that away, and they're beavering behind the scenes to see how to produce a global resolution that actually moves us in that direction. That is going to be the biggest transformation that our economy has seen since we had a global economy, to decarbonize our economy. Our energy, of course, is produced very largely from fossil fuels. And let me just underline this by showing you, and I'm going to give you some science data which I happen to be very excited about. When I, this is my excuse for showing you this, when I started talking about climate change in government uh, uh, eight years ago, I, I was able to show people data from paleoclimatology going back 250,000 years. And the data was t obtained from ice cores taken in the Antarctic. Imagine taking an ice core. At the bottom of the ice core, you're looking at ice compacted from a snowfall that fell 250,000 years ago. And at the top of the ice core, you've got last year's snowfall. And collected in the ice core is bubbles of air. And you, you therefore have a sampling of what the atmosphere was like. 250,000 years ago at the bottom of your ice core. And from the water isotope ratio in the ice, you also have the temperature. So we know global temperatures and global atmospheric compositions going back a long way. Now, I'm showing you data that goes back much further than that. You can take the longest ice core that's been analyzed, is three kilometers long from the Antarctic, and it goes back 852,000 years with remarkable resolution. You can pick up year on year. But 
the ocean sedimentologists began to think, well, we can do the same. So they took cores from the, the ocean sediment, and sure enough, the comparison in the 850,000-year cycle is remarkably good. So what I'm showing you here is the last 60 million years record of our, our, our climate uh, in terms of the temperature on this axis here. In the 850,000 years, you get remarkably good agreement between ice cores and sediment, but you can't use ice cores going further back. This is all from ocean sedimentation. And you see that the, the planet temperature went through a maximum about 55 million years ago, the, the Eocene-Pleocene transition point. And at this point up here, no ice left on the planet. Uh, the Antarctic was a subtropical forest with very large mammals. If you go beyond your last bit of the ice core, you find the remnants of all these species there. And the temperature is about 10 degrees higher than they were in the pre-industrial period, the recent pre-industrial period. So we move forward in time. Carbon dioxide levels up at that point, we, we have to estimate. Ice cores are needed to know what was the atmosphere was like. So we have to estimate, and it, it was probably a couple of thousand parts per million. I, I'm going to give you some numbers, and you can compare them. Carbon dioxide levels fall, a temperature falls, and we come down to a temperature where we, human beings, feel, and other large mammals, feel relatively comfortable with about two million years ago. This is the point at which hominids begin to appear. So this is quite an interesting period. Uh, this, by the way, isn't noise. We have a biphasic system. It's unstable. The climate system goes unstable. Biphasic meaning it's either low temperature or high temperature. We call, in common parlance, we call them the ice ages and the warm periods. Right, so they begin about two million years ago. And then if I just expand, so this is the present day, and this little spike top here is our current warm period. Now we come back here. Again in blue I've got the temperature, but now I've got from ice cores the carbon dioxide levels. So we, we come through a series of ice ages, warm period, ice ages, warm period, and each warm period carbon dioxide levels are 270 parts per million, and each ice age carbon dioxide levels are about 200 parts per million. There's a coupling which Fourier understood, the great mathematician in 1827, and uh, we can go into that in the discussion. There's a coupling, it's not a direct linear relationship, the coupling between the we come to the, the last, the end of the last ice age, 18,000 years ago, we rise out of that, 12,000 years ago, present warm period, remarkably stable temperature. That's been good for us. Not only remarkably stable temperature, if you come out of an ice age into a warm period, then sea levels have got to go up, because ice that's on land is melting and going into the ocean and pushing up sea levels. So the sea level goes up about 100 meters. So the map of the world changes, and then we have a very stable map of the world over this period. So stable, we've been building our major cities around the coastline. Of course, it's not a coincidence that this is the period of our civilization.
makes this warm period longer than the others, that's a point of some dis live discussion at the moment. If you look at the carbon dioxide signature, you see it's creeping up, whereas it should have started coming down. So there's a discussion about whether this is the first Anthropocene, the climate period produced by our behavior, where during the development of our civilization, we start developing agriculture and taking trees out, taking forests out, removing forests means removing material that removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So maintaining the stability of the atmosphere in terms of carbon dioxide is a dynamic interplay between green matter and us. And we've been upsetting that by developing farming. And then, of course, this isn't a mistake. Um, then, of course, we come to that wonderful period I described, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and we start providing energy for our uh, requirements by going underground and finding naturally sequestered carbon that is in the form of coal, gas, and oil, and burning it to provide all of our requirements. And the net result of that is that we're now at 387 parts per million and rising at two parts per million per annum. And then if you ask the question, well, how far do I have to go back in time before I get to that sort of level of carbon dioxide? And I can only give a rough answer, but it's represented by that red line. Right? So what you could say, well, the temperature rise so far is only 0.7 of a degree centigrade, but it should have been higher. Well, the reason is we have a lot of inertia in the Earth's climate system, mainly because of the oceans. The oceans take a long time to catch up. And so because of that inertia, we've got another 30 years of climate change ahead of us, whatever we do, even if we stop at 387 parts per million, which we're not going to do. Right, so th there's the nature of the problem. Uh, just one more point. Um, what would happen if we burnt all of our fossil fuels, in particular all of the coal? Can we get the temperature back up there? My research is basically theoretical and experimental, but this is one experiment I'm going to suggest we don't try. <laughs> because I believe we could. I think, I think there is enough uh, coal there to produce a carbon dioxide level of about 1,500 parts per million if we burnt all of the coal. And we're at 387 now, so we, we, could, uh, we could manage it in, in 150 years or so. Um, the, the future would be a pretty bleak one for a population of 9 billion because the, the managing the uh, remaining livable part of the planet would not actually be an easy exercise. So it's quite obvious, we ha this is a problem that we have to manage and we have to avoid as we move forward in time. What is the likely rise in temperature as we move forward under different global agreements? So here the question is coming at me from a prime minister. So David, what, what is the level of carbon dioxide we have to stay below to avoid a two degree temperature rise? Well, I'm afraid the answer has to be given in terms of probability distribution functions. I can only answer in terms of a probability distribution function. This represents the best state of current science today from around the world. And it says that in blue, that is the PDF 
for an ultimate carbon dioxide level of 450 parts per million. And this is carbon dioxide equivalent, so I'm including other greenhouse gases now. That peaks at 2.2 degrees. It's an asymmetric curve, and that's the most worrying feature. So it says, yes, I've, I've got a low probability of only a 1.5 degree temperature rise. We've already got a 0.7 degrees, so double what we've got already. Very low probability of that happening. But I've got a, also a low probability of going over 4 degrees rise. And here's the problem. I, I said we keep using linear curves. There's a lot of nonlinear feedbacks left out of these calculations. So what is not included here is sudden evolution of methane hydrates from uh, regions of the planet such as around uh, the Arctic Circle. As that melts, we may get sudden emission of methane hydrates. Methane is a very strong greenhouse gas. It doesn't include tropical forests dying off. Scientists are very conservative. They can't model these things well, so they're just not included in the model. None of us trust the figures above about 3.5 degrees on this, these curves because we think that's teasing these big nonlinear feedbacks that might give runaway climate change a chance. Right, so what is the probability of exceeding 3.5 degrees? It's about 20%, even on the best possible curve in terms of good behavior by the international community. In other words, if we stay below 450 parts per million, it will take... 100 years for the temperature to rise to these levels. But nevertheless, and I said to the Prime Minister, if you get in the plane tonight to Camp David and you ask the pilot, what are, what are the chances of landing this plane safely? And he says 80%. I suggest you'd get off the plane. And yet that is the best way forward for the planet at the moment is uh, uh, an 80% chance of avoiding... Uh, teasing above three and a half degrees centigrade. Now, obviously, the more greenhouse gases you put in the atmosphere, these probability distribution functions shift to the right and to be avoided. So we need a global agreement that keeps us down at that, uh, that sort of level. And, of course, the question is going to be whether we can deliver that. Um, and, of course, that is the big challenge. I'm going to suggest that as we move towards Copenhagen in, towards the end of next year, 2009, that's not a long way away. We will barely have got a new president into the White House, not an irrelevant factor. This is what is needed out of Copenhagen, the successor to Kyoto. Kyoto has produced virtually nothing except, and it is one great success, the European Emissions Trading Scheme. And I will take you through that. What we need now is a totally fresh view, better science is available, better understanding of what we need to do. These are my de minimis requirements for a decent global agreement. One, that we agree where we're going. Let's stay below X parts per million of greenhouse gases as we move forward in time. I would like X to be even lower than 450, but I'm also a realist. Agreed national targets. If that's our global target, then we have to have national targets so that when you add up all the figures from every nation, it comes to the global target. And these targets are trajectories into the future. So that by, let's say, mid-century, we're all 
emitting about two tons per person per annum. Then we're managing the problem. Once we've agreed national targets, we move on to how do we manage that agreement? And I'm totally in favor of a trading scheme because once you have a trading scheme in place, it's very difficult to stop it. So creating a carbon dioxide market, and today the market in <coughs> Europe is worth about 55 billion pounds. If it goes global, let me rephrase that, I am an optimist, when it goes global, I believe we will see a trading in the region of a trillion, uh, a trillion dollars. So a very large investment is already taking place in Europe to sustain the trading process. And as we move forward in time and it goes global, we will simply have this commodity. I even think the currencies will be valued against carbon dioxide as the, the major tradable commodity. We need to move on from carbon trading, though, to dealing with the demands of those parts of the planet where lifespan is not high. On that map I showed you at the beginning, Africa has missed out on all of the developments of the uh, 20th century. Lifespan there is still 40 to 45. And Africa will not manage to adapt against the impacts of climate change that will happen. This country has an adaptation plan. I'm proud of it because I put it in place, which is costing us about 300 to 400 million pounds a year, and that will be ramped up as we move forward in time. But countries in Africa couldn't possibly afford anything like that. So we need an adaptation strategy for developing countries and technology transfer means low carbon energy futures being transferred to those countries. We need to create a financial flow to back that up. And I believe, and, but this isn't a requirement, I simply believe the way to do it is to auction the permits for the carbon dioxide trading generate a large sum of funds from the auction and use that in terms of the, uh, the last requirement. This is, in Kyoto terms, called the clean development mechanism in part, but the adaptation strategy has not yet been, uh, been discussed and put in place. What, what do we need in terms of managing this problem? Decarbonize our uh, system. Well, this map is just to show you that we have been a bit blinkered in our pr approach towards energy production. Why? Quite simply because um, we didn't need to develop alternatives to carbon as an energy source. Coal was cheaply available and we were not inspired to generate alternative large-scale energy sources. So what I'm showing here is if you ask the question, how much sunlight arriving on the surface of the planet would we need to convert into usable energy to provide all of our energy sources out to the middle of the century for 9 billion people? And the answer is the amount of sunlight landing on these six small squares. Right, so we have about 10,000 times as much sunlight, solar energy reaching the planet that we would need if we just converted efficiently into electricity and transport energy and so on. We've done very little on this. So we need to refocus our attention, technology, innovation, private sector innovations need to refocus on this. 
I can see massive changes here. It's not only that I, I believe it's very short-sighted to have solar panels which are made of silicon. This is a, a kind of scientific laziness. Semiconductors have been very successful in chips and microchips, and most of these are silicon-based. Semi semiconductor physics is all built around silicon. So now you ask the same people to develop photovoltaics, and they come up with silicon. No surprise. I want to see photovoltaics that are made of ceramics, plastics, and paint, so that architects can use these on the outside of every building, and every building just generates whatever energy it can from sunlight. You then need, of course, a means of storing the energy. These are solvable problems if we just focus, focus on them. But there's another. What about large-scale energy conversion? I can see using the desertified areas, for example, of Africa as sources of electricity, which can just be piped across into Africa. Spain is becoming desertified as we move forward. And Spain, using that as an economic resource to invest in solar energy, large-scale solar energy, the Spanish government is already uh, uh, moving in, in that direction. I think these, in other words, are problems that are there because we haven't had to solve them before. But as soon as it becomes a necessity, I believe solutions will emerge. This is just to indicate where solar possibilities are greatest. These are the areas where solar energy conversion is really ripe for production. Um, and uh, as we, I'm afraid, as we move up with global warming through the century, the red part of this curve moves uh, up towards the Arctic. I'm going to shorten this a bit. I want to say that in order to meet this challenge, but also to meet the current financial crisis, we need new thinking. In fact, going back to my curve, we need to be thinking very hard about how we manage globally to reach solutions. I mean, the first thing is by national perceptions versus global priorities. If we move forward in time and still continue to have dysfunctional global bodies, and I'm suggesting the United Nations is no longer, in its present form, fit for purpose, it won't, it's not ready to meet the challenges I'm talking about, unless we rethink these global bodies to meet these challenges, we're going to struggle to go forward because national priorities will dominate, national perceptions of what is required. By the way, that food crisis I referred to, I was really talking about the initial causes of those prices going up, but actually what pushed them up was the secondary effect of governments stepping in and stopping food crossing their borders. In other words, trading was stopped because they, there was a perception that they would be able to feed their own people better from the food that they were themselves growing. And that actually caused the crisis to magnify enormously. So global priorities need to be worked through and worked through in this multidimensional way with intelligent, knowledge-based communities. Now, at the end of the Second World War, we did have an American president who saw the need to move on from the old League of Nations to a much stronger um, uh, 
global body, the United Nations. And I think we're back into that position now where we need leadership at the very top. And today, I, I think it would be asking a bit too much of an American president alone to carry this vision forward. It does require perhaps Hu Jintao, perhaps Manmohan Singh to stand with the American president and with the European Union president and push for a stronger globalized system where we can begin to move forward and meet these challenges. I'm going to suggest also there are other challenges, economism. The idea that um, consumerism can drive all of our market, through market processes, all of our needs is clearly, uh, uh, surely now at least, something that we all understand has faults to it. A consumerism driven by creating funds out of the value of your house by remortgaging and then off you go on another consumer spin and it turns out the money wasn't there so we have a large amount, trillions of dollars of bad money generated in the system through this consumer driven boom. As we emerge from this, and I'm not suggesting it's going to be easy, I, I hope we will see it as an opportunity to move forward into a system which manages all of this complexity in our global system and that we move away from a simple market approach. We need market approaches, consumerism is a good idea, but we need all sorts of regulatory systems in place. Nostalgic romanticism is, is my reference to the notion that um, the, the solutions were in the past. Um, I'm, I'm not a tree hugger, you might have noticed. Uh, I believe that the solutions lie with science, engineering, technology, good economics, uh, good behavioral sciences. The solutions are there in the advanced knowledge base. And then finally, and this is a challenge to scientific people, re-gearing science and technology to meet the global challenge, but also economists. I'm going to suggest that we know a little bit more about landing a craft on Mars or the functions of a Higgs boson, which is certainly topical, uh, than we do about managing malaria, managing HIV AIDS, uh, managing alternative technologies for uh, uh, low-carbon technologies, uh, and by the way, also managing e uh, global economies. Right, so we, we have put a lot of brain power into the first two of those things I mentioned. We need to re-gear the brain power into the real challenges around the 21st century. We need brilliant people to come forward with very clever solutions at this point in time. I'm going to stop because I, I think I've got to leave a little time for discussion. But I just want to say, in terms of the market, the free market system, I was recently in, uh, in South Africa giving a lecture, and as I stood up, it was 5 o'clock in the afternoon, summer's day, I looked outside, I was in Pretoria, I could see across to Johannesburg, and I could see the on the skyline those amazing skyscrapers in this city in Africa. And 
As a matter of fact, all I could actually see were the tips of the skyscrapers. There was this great pall of pollution below the tops of the skyscrapers. I had two ministers in front of me, and I have to say I took a bit of pleasure in then starting my lecture by saying that until I stood up, I didn't realize that South Africa had not introduced car exhaust regulations. And afterwards, this red-faced minister asked me how I knew that. I said, as you travel into any city in the world, you instantly know whether you have car exhaust regulations uh, in that city. There has been a massive cleanup through car exhaust regulations being introduced back in the 1970s, initially in California. In Europe, we picked it up quite quickly. This is a progressive regulation, progressive in the sense that each time it is announced, in three years' time, no new car can be purchased in Europe, it is now, unless it meets the following regulatory requirements. NOx gases, carbon monoxide, particulate matter from diesel engines, and so on. To the point now, for next year's requirement in Europe, if we had, <coughs> let's say, a BMW diesel engine car in this room, with the, ca the car exhaust catalyst on the end of it, it would actually clean up the air in the room. That's what we've managed through a remarkable piece of technology in the back end of cars, driven not by individuals saying, I want to clean up through my car, but driven by governments realizing this is a problem that can only be managed by regulatory systems. I'm laboring this point because I think that for years now, the Chicago School of Economists have been pushing against any form of regulation. The good behavior will emerge. Good behavior can't emerge uh, to manage this problem. And we've seen how all of these problems signified here have actually been managed. So at the very top, we have hydrocarbons, HFCs, that uh, started chewing up the ozone hole. We all know about the ozone hole. And global agreement, Montreal, um, the ozone hole is going to take a little while to repair itself, but the good news is that by mid-century, that ozone hole will be fully back in place. So we know the problem, the science attacks it, we introduce regulatory systems, and we can manage it. On the car exhaust catalyst systems, I want to tell you that every time the new announcement emerges from Europe, every car manufacturer complains. They say, impossible, we can't possibly meet that. They have never failed to meet it, all of them, knowing that it, their competitors are likely to, so they need to as well. It's a driver for, for innovation. So I think the, the notion that we can manage this is there. And I, I just want to say, because I, I'm not an economist, but I nevertheless do follow a bit of economic development, that if we are going to move forward sustainably, and there's the Brundtland uh, definition up there, we need to use economic tools that allow us to, to measure how well we are moving forward in time. I just use here Dasgupta's analysis. There may be better ones about. And Dasgupta says, let's take the wealth of a nation as a measure of how well we're doing. Is the wealth of our nation improving or not improving? This is very different from GDP. And the wealth of the nation is manufactured capital, human capital, natural and environmental capital, and of course, institutions, culture, etc. 
If we take a country like Nigeria, which produces oil, the oil under the ground, not mined, with a, with a global value, gives me a high wealth for my nation. But as soon as I take it out of the ground and sell it, I've got a potential for diminishing wealth unless I reinvest in these two. So it's a, it's a very good measure for a developing country that's got oil to make sure that they manage their wealth as an upward movement. But of course, what I've been talking about is the importance of the atmosphere and its contribution to our potential wealth creation capability as we move through this century. Because as sea levels rise, as temperatures rise, we are going to see all of those challenges around population as the driver that I began with, mounting up with, uh, with the impacts of climate change. I'm going to just, if I may, end with a few words about what I'm trying to do now in Oxford. Why start up a new school in an ancient university? Well, of course, the first idea is that the ancient university is quite a useful uh, branding. Uh, the second is that the school is designed to bring together academics, the private sector, and governments to seek solutions around these problems, to create a hub, a global hub, where we can gather people together from each of these sectors to find solutions to these problems. And these are going to be multidisciplinary teams. So we are going to have economists, social scientists, behavioral scientists, and physicists, engineers, and so on. As a matter of fact, we now have 60 associates appointed from around Oxford University. We have 25 people in the school, which started on the 1st of January. And we're already then beginning this process of solution seeking. It's not the usual sort of process for a university department. This is taking the knowledge base into the marketplace, into governments, for better regulation and for innovations that will take us forward uh, to meet these challenges. I'm setting up a futures laboratory, and this futures laboratory will set up a series of programs in which we can corral the knowledge base uh, to begin to uh, take these solutions forward. I'll leave you with that. Thank you very much. said at the beginning, you are unlikely to hear a lecture more authoritative, compelling, and clear on these issues, and I think that certainly was exactly what you delivered, David. Um, of course, there, it's a very clear narrative. It's, uh, I think it's impressively integrated. Um, the diagram that shows the interconnections of problems with each other is very compelling, um, uh, and it leaves a very clear impression and picture about what we need to do, how we need to do it, although there are lots of uncertainties. And listening to the words you emphasize at the end, you know, re-regulation or changing regulation, reframing markets, redistribution, re-gearing, I thought to myself, well, this is the right lecture for an institution founded by the Fabians. In a sense, what you're saying is that knowledge empowers, that knowledge creates the capacity for producing the right solutions. Um, but we yet don't yet have a cultural framework and a political will or leadership that can deliver what the knowledge potentially promises to, in forms of public goods, social goods, and so on. 
a powerful narrative around which, no doubt, there are questions. So let me start, before I raise some of my own, um, by asking you to raise your hands so I can know where your questions are. We'll take them in clusters, David, if that's all right. Take two or three at least. And uh, Okay, we'll start with the microphone over there, then we'll come to, to you up there. Yeah. Hello. Uh, I'd like to ask a question about uh, carbon trading. You said that in relation to... COVID Can you speak into the mic? Okay, thanks. Thank you. Uh, in relation to carbon trading and Copenhagen, you saw carbon trading as a global essential, I think. Um, in view of the current turmoil in the money markets, how can we ensure that carbon trading systems do not suffer from similar flaws? Thank you. Yes. Perhaps you could just briefly say who you are when you ask. Yes, is that better? Uh, yes, Sir David, I wondered what, what, what you thought the role would be of the various technical fixes that have been proposed for reducing the actual temperature change, because it seems to me that the Americans in particular will find it much easier to agree to invest in, every, in technical fixes that would support business as usual, rather than to have to uh, change their wicked ways. Thank you. Down here, yes, gentlemen at the back. Yeah, several at the back. <laughs> Let's take you with a blue shirt, yes. Yes, my name is Mr. Bonf. I am from Oxford SCD. <coughs> Question I want to ask Professor Smith. I appreciate your talking. What do you think about this new cohesion policy or Lisbon strategy in Europe? How do they treat the climatological issue? How is integrated on this issue here? What should be done? Thank you. Can we take two more? Yes, at the back. Lady at the back. Thank you. Hello? Yeah. Katrine Brayhook from uh, New Scientist. Um, right here. <laughs> so, David, I was wondering, uh, we take our natural resources and ecosystem services for granted, and I'm wondering how long do you think it will be before we ascribe an economic value to them, which corresponds to the services that they actually provide to our society. And just as a, another half question, if I may, about the G8 agreement of this year, I'm afraid I was one of those of the media who criticized it, perhaps. Um, and I was just wondering on, on the timing, how was it that that agreement came about without there being a base year set, which did strike us as slightly surprising? Yes. Uh, thank you, Leslie Dighton, uh, Chairman's Club and Governor of the School. Could you tell me just a little bit about the global machinery that you see either in the process of being built or necessary in the future for overcoming national competitive conflict? Yeah, one more. I mean, that's uh, already quite a load, yes. Hello. Last one on this round. Uh, Salim Loxley, what is the role and the feasibility of carbon capture and storage technology for the mitigation of climate change and its effect? Yeah, and how far are we from having an effective system so important for developing countries? Thank you. That's a nice range of questions. I, I start with carbon trading. Um, the, the question was, can we 
anticipate managing to continue with carbon tra trading given the turmoil in the current marketplace. And I, I think it is at risk. I think, however, that we have uh, a whole series of risks in the shorter term. Um, I think one of the risks, for example, is that as governments respond by printing money, um, that we might run into hyperinflation. So I can see a liquidity crisis becoming an inflationary crisis on a global scale. Um, so I, my response to this is that we need to set out a global plan to create the liquidity required to remove this distrust in money, which is, uh, is the big problem at the moment. Who's going to keep my money? Um, and at the same time, this is an opportunity to create a plan in which we include a value for ecosystems, in which we include uh, carbon dioxide trading on a global scale. I actually think there is an opportunity here to generate a solution provided the G8 leaders remember the problem that they've put at the t head of their table for the last four years while they are dealing with this crisis. I say that because there is a tendency always to marginalize problems as long as the next problem comes into view. Um, and carbon cap and trade is not something that can be marginalized. We can't possibly do it. So I've been saying for some time, we need to manage economic growth. We need to contain inflation as we do that and we need to reduce our dependence on carbon. All of these things have to be managed together, and we can't separate one out from the other. Technical fixes, a very important question and an interesting one. I think uh, you know, the Americans are looking for technical fixes. I, what is being referred to here is, is the talk about, um, uh, let me give it an extreme example. We put a whole bunch of mirrors up in space and we reflect sunlight back into space and say so we cool the planet down. Uh, um, the, the unintended consequences from any one of these potential geo geoengineering exercises are enormous. And I rather turn this around and say we need a global agreement that we can stop people uh, uh, doing and ge attempting geoengineering fixes. Uh, one of them is uh, to toss uh, a lot of iron into the oceans to create algae. The algae uses up the carbon dioxide. It's then supposed to sink harmlessly to the bottom of the ocean. Um, we, we have no idea on a large scale what this would do to the ocean uh, um, biosystem. And we know that the ocean biosystem is part of the initial feedstock on which we all depend, the beginning of the food chain. Um, but Americans looking for that, let me just say, uh, because I, I need this opportunity to say it. When I went into the White House in 2001, trying to persuade them for the first time that Kyoto wasn't dead and they needed to take action, I was told that uh, the damage to the American economy was more worth, uh, more trouble, would create more trouble than letting this problem rip if it was a real problem. Um, now instead, when America felt, and I believe this sincerely, that they had passed the peak oil production for the United States, they felt there was a real risk of securing supplies of oil to their nation 
The first response before getting farmers to make biofuel, the first response was to look around the world, find an area of significant oil reserves and move into it. The Saddam Hussein had created the pretext. They were already talking about it before 9-11, and then 9-11 triggered the response. The cost, this is a single nation trying to, in my view, secure supplies. The cost, according to Stiglitz, $3 trillion. Let's suppose he's wrong, and it's only a trillion dollars. I don't think that has solved any problems for America in terms of security of oil supply. It's created massive problems and probably a big dent to their own economic development. <coughs> Whereas if that trillion dollars had been expended on alternatives to fossil fuels, they would have created the energy security they needed. So it's, it's a question of moving your thinking away from just saying, my God, we're running out of oil, therefore we need more oil. European policy, I'll, I'll try and be briefer. European policy and how to integrate. I'm, I'm not sure that I quite picked up the, the point here, but the, the, I, we're 27 nations in Europe, yes. And um, even, even when we were 15, having 15 different voices around the table um, with uh, more than 15 simultaneous translators working away behind uh, was massively challenging, as I'm sure you know, on every issue. Uh, what is quite remarkable, in my view, is that Barroso has shown the strength to act on this climate change issue, for example. So in the first round of emissions trading in Europe, it was a failure. And the reason it was a failure was because each nation started playing games, and they offered a cap for next year's carbon dioxide emission, which wasn't a cap at all, it was really business as usual. And the result is that the markets devalued carbon dioxide and the price going up to 20 euros flattened out at about 2 euros a tonne. Barroso in the second round then took the initial offers from each country and reduced them by a very significant percentage. And that was the first major move towards an ETS that was actually working. So I th it turns out that a bit of strength is required from within the Commission itself to carry these policies through, and then it can be done. Um, the, the, I've mentioned economic value uh, of ecosystems, and I, I think this is such an important point. In a way, of course, I'm saying carbon dioxide needs a negative value. Right? So I'm putting a value on not emitting carbon dioxide. Uh, but the more complex problem, for example, is uh, avoided deforestation. Uh, about one-fifth of the problem is from annual rates of deforestation. So how do we move on avoiding deforestation? One way is to say that we need to put a value on the biodiverse systems in those forests. Uh, as we move out of this super-consumerism that has driven us into this crisis, I think we need to start valuing um, good behavior in, in this way in terms of how we treat that planetary system in moving forward. But you are putting forward a very big challenge because we might all agree on carbon dioxide pricing, but it's going to be a great deal more difficult to agree on a general ecosystem pricing. Uh, let's follow that up. I mean, there's a, a lot of work to be done in that area. Um, the, the other thing was your, your point about the G8 and the base year. 
50% decrease on the level of emissions 1990 or 2009 is a massive drop when you compare it with business as usual rising to mid-century. So business as usual rising to mid-century makes that more like a 75% global decrease. So what I'm saying is this is the first major signal we've had from all the G8 heads of states that we really must decarbonize our economies. Yeah, we can quibble about you know, what that means in actual percentage terms, but as a clear statement for action, I honestly couldn't have expected more uh, after the battles, the red line battles in Glen Eagles, uh, the, the United States presidency had uh, officials who put red lines through every single statement of this kind. So finally, we did manage to get it through in Japan. I suppose it's the scars on my back that make it feel like a real uh, victory. Um, global machinery, I think this is such a, a big question. But I, I, I just want to say, I think it's got something to do with the G8 plus five. That the uh, G8 grouping is only part of the important equation at the moment. But certainly when we were leading up to Glen Eagles, I was one of those voices in government arguing, it's no good just having the G8 countries there. We need China, we need Brazil, we need India there, and we need Mexico and South Africa. Uh, we need to have Africa represented. If you imagine an agreement on climate change involving the G8 plus 5 grouping, it's G8 plus 5 plus 1 because Barroso is also there, and they reach agreement so that Japan, Europe, China, India, Brazil have all reached agreement on what to do about climate change, and then take it to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change with 190 countries represented, I believe you've got a solution that would just be carried through uh, by a vast majority vote. So in other words, I, I think it's something to do with focusing down onto the ability of the larger emerging powers working with the developed nations uh, in a smaller grouping. Now, that's not the whole solution. You've then got to have the uh, second round not the G90, you know, but the, the, the second round of countries. But it, I think we then need to move from this bigger hub to creating smaller hubs that feed into that. Um, carbon capture and storage. Carbon capture and storage is something that we actually need to invest in. One of my biggest disappointments uh, from a British government point of view was that I thought we had agreed to have a demonstration project on carbon capture and storage. Let me say it once, carbon capture and storage comes in two parts, capture, imagine a coal-fired power station, separate out the carbon dioxide coming out of the top of it, and then that's the capture part, then bury it, safely bury it. The capture part is a done piece of technology, that's the easy bit. The storage part and the transfer, if your power station is a long way from where you're going to store, you've got a lot of transfer problems, transport. But the storage is a very real problem. If we go beyond oil wells that are depleted in oil, 
Now, the, the very nature of, a, of oil is that it's contained geologically. Well, imagine a large slab of granite containing oil and gas. It's safely capped by this large cap of granite, and so it lasts for millions of years. That's why when we drill through the cap, we get a spout of oil out, and we get gas out. All you've got to do is push the carbon dioxide back in and seal it, and you, you know it's going to be good. But we haven't got enough space in the depleted oil wells to manage the problem. So we need to prove that we can do it in a saline aquifer. In other words, a rocky deposit of seawater underground where we simply displace the seawater with the carbon dioxide. That, that is an experiment that still has to be done. It's a half billion pound experiment. Um, I signed an agreement when I was in government with the Chinese government that we would transfer the technology as we developed it. But we're not developing it. We, by the way, an awful lot of coal left. Awful temptation to continue using it. It's so important that we demonstrate whether or not we can do carbon capture and storage. Um, two, three more minutes. So, brief questions. Brief yes, answers. brief questions. Well, we, don't, we like the answers. Yeah, brief questions and to the point answers. Thank you. Yes. Hello, uh, Hal Roberts, Trek UK. Um, I believe that um, concentrated solar power, coupled with long-distance HVDC transmission, represents something of a silver bullet in the fight against climate change. Do you agree? I think it's cheaper than CCS as well. It, it will be. And one more question at the top. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, I'm from India, and I'm here at the Gurukul Leadership Program. As you already presented and answered part of the question already, which I'm going to ask you, China and India are critical actors in this whole global negotiation on climate change. Uh, as we move towards uh, Copenhagen, do you really find that a concrete international regime will emerge that will be sustainable, or are you going to find a realignment of forces on climate change? After all, it's going to become geopolitical rather than the science of it. I'd like your comments on that. Okay. I, I think we'll wrap it up with those two, David. Thank you. Oh. All right. we, we need to finish is, is solar power a silver bullet? I don't actually think there is a silver bullet as such. I, I believe, as I indicated, that we need considerably more research into solar power energy generation of all kinds, uh, whether it's direct solar heating of your water system, which is easy, uh, focusing with large-scale mirrors, which is no new technology, or, as I suggested, solar photovoltaic spreading into cheap, easily available, architecturally acceptable materials. But we don't have enough capability at the moment. And so, for example, I was certainly pushing in all my time in government for nuclear new build in this country. Not because it's a silver bullet, because, but because I think we need one more generation of nuclear power stations to see us through the period until these new technologies emerge. Um, nuclear, if, if I can just sell it to you very simply, 
If you travel on Eurostar, as I occasionally do, it's my favorite form of travel. It's comfortable, it's fast, it gets you there quickly, and it gets to you to the center of the city you're going to. And at the same time, if you're in France, you're not emitting carbon dioxide because the electricity uh, on the railway line is coming from nuclear power stations. So we, we can generate a comfortable lifestyle if we exploit the capability from nuclear. Uh, we can have a long nuclear discussion, but that wasn't the point of your question. I just want to say we need every tool in the bag. We need to examine every possible resource because this is a massive challenge. And it's going to require money. I did set up that Energy Technologies Institute. It's yours That's now, I'm yes. the one And um, the Energy Technologies Institute is a one billion pound investment in the UK. Half the money coming from the private sector so that it's market facing. One billion pounds might sound like a lot of money. The energy industry is a multi-trillion dollar industry and they invest very little in research. I saw that as simply pump priming for the research that needs to be done. We need to be spending billions on research into all of these potential solutions, and we, we can do it. Concrete regime <coughs> emerging or a realignment. Um, what, what is interesting is not only what I said about the G8 countries, but it's what's happening in China uh, and in India. So public opinion in India has uh, transformed itself. There is a real understanding, perhaps even a better understanding in India, if you read the media, than there is in Britain today of the challenges of climate change. When I first went out to India um, six years ago during the time of BNJP, there was, there was no audience whatsoever. So there's a real transformation, and it's just happened in the last year or so. And I see Manmohan Singh making a very clear statement, Deepak Sibyl making a very clear statement. India is moving into towards a leadership position on, on this whole issue. Why? Because India's coastline is massively under threat as you move forward in in time through this century from increased flooding. And that understanding has come through. In China, equally, the, the biggest economic miracle in China is in Shanghai and around Shanghai. I managed to get a flood and coastal defense analysis with the Chinese government going, uh, with our team who did the same for the British Isles. And it became clear to them that Shanghai will not survive to the end of the century unless we reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so once again, I would say the Chinese Politburo understands the nature of the problem. So I think <coughs> there's a realignment emerging in a positive way. And of course, assuming the American electorate gets it right, uh, then we, we may even see a fruitful solution emerging in a, a, a short time. Copenhagen is a very short time away. Well, before I thank David, I'll just want to mention one um, uh, special Miliband event that we've put on at short notice, which is this time next week, 6.30, here in the Old Theatre. I will be having a conversation with Will Hutton and Martin Wolf from the Financial Times on the global financial crisis. And whereas I doubt either will reach tonight's levels of clarity, it will be a first-rate discussion from t two leading commentators 
on how it's happened, what is happening, and what are the next steps forward. But before you all go, I would like to once again thank David. It's the second time he's been here in recent years. It's a, it was a tour de force, David, and all I can say is can you come back next week and carry on. Thank you.